So then you're continuing your relationship with Marcus, yeah. um, who ends up being my dad. Yes. And so, yeah, how is that relationship going and how do you get pregnant? Do I, so you want me to give you the details? <laughs> I mean, I mean, we can keep it PG-13. I'm just curious yeah, about. I'm not, not going to go there because I think I do know when you were conceived. Okay. I mean, so I'm not going to share how, where. Okay. I think was. we all know how. Well, <laughs> I think well. we all know how, you know, in some ways. We don't but need to go say, into yeah, the where we don't need that. to know positions Thank or how you. long it was. Okay. Y'all, that's my mama you heard talking, Adrian Robinson. And I had the pleasure of interviewing her in the very first episode of the Birth Justice Podcast NYC. It felt important to start the podcast off with a birth story and with a bit of history. And I got both in this interview with my mom as she shared what it was like to give birth to me in New York City in 1985. And of course, I had to release this episode and kick off the podcast on my birthday. It only felt right. Now, my mom said a lot of things that surprised me. It was my first time hearing my whole birth story, including how I was conceived. So maybe not all the details of how and when I was created, but I got the gist. My mother was really vulnerable, sharing all kinds of details from her birth control methods to her troubled relationship with her parents. She also shared what it was like to be pregnant as a young woman in nursing school and what it was like to give birth to me two weeks before her 20th birthday. Season one of the Birth Justice Podcast at NYC was a wild ride. In a dozen episodes, we covered over 20 hours of content examining the intersections of race, gender, and birth. We are currently preparing for season two, which will drop later in 2022, but... Before we launch into a new season, it feels important to review some, though not all, (laughs) of the wisdom and insight we received in season one and to share a few juicy details about what you can expect in season two. After chatting with my mom in episode one, we covered the history of reproductive health, rights, and justice. In episode two, I interviewed Dr. Deirdre Cooper Owens author of Medical Bondage, about the history of American medicine. And we can't talk about the origins of American gynecology without also talking about James Marion Sims, the so-called father of gynecology. His achievements in medicine were rooted in his experiments on enslaved Black women, justified by racist ideologies and beliefs. Sims didn't create the ideology or set of beliefs that Black people didn't experience pain or somehow Black women's bodies were constructed in ways that made them give birth like dogs or or rabbits. This had already been established throughout the European world, right? So when there were things that was, you know, originally called natural history that then becomes science, that then becomes obstetrics or gynecology, these ideas about Black people's difference or biological difference had already existed. So Sims doesn't have to create anything. He can just step into place because these Systems are already there. Indeed. Sims was not exceptional, okay? He had peers in the budding medical field who operated in very similar ways. This kind of behavior in medicine and science was considered acceptable, and it begs the question, 
How do you know when something is quote unquote wrong if what is wrong is normalized? Despite his lack of exceptionalism, Sims is often honored in medical schools and in monuments like the one that was recently removed in East Harlem under pressure from local activists. The people worth honoring, however, like the enslaved black women he repeatedly experimented on, are often unnamed, in part because we do not know all of their names. But we do know of three. Anarcha, Betsy, and Lucy. Many people, including Dr. Deirdre Cooper Owens, refer to them as the mothers of gynecology. And as she was navigating her own reproductive health care, Dr. Cooper Owens was reminded that she lives in the wake of their legacy. And here I was, I had all the box ticked as a quote-unquote respectable Black person. I was married, I was a professor, I had a PhD, I lived in Manhattan. All of these things that were supposed to protect me. And ultimately, none of that matters when you have been reduced to other people's stereotypical ideas about who you are and what you represent. And so that really was what that afterward was about. I am Anarchist's daughter and Lucy's daughter and Betsy's daughter and all of those other countless women whose names had not been recorded in, in the historical record, that I am their daughter. Indeed, we are the daughters. I, too, am the daughter of Anarcha, Betsy, and Lucy, and we honor their legacy in our lives and in our organizing. In episode three, I chatted with Leslie Grant Spann about teen moms organizing for dignity and education in the Bronx in the early 2000s. In addition to sharing her birth stories, she also gave us some insight about what it was like to organize among her peers of pregnant and parenting teens with a group called Sisters on the Rise. At least 30% of the young women that we were serving were in foster care. It wasn't just the fact that now this young person was a pregnant and parenting teen, Life was happening to them on a lot of different fronts, and they were interacting with a multitude of city and governmental systems that had zero interest in their survival. Mm. And so that's when the reproductive justice framework started to make more sense to us when we started understanding the institutional oppression that our young people was facing. Leslie went from being a member of the organization to a staff person and later the executive director. And during her tenure with the organization, Leslie was able to grow her leadership skills and strengthen her voice. And Sisters on the Rise came right at the right time. The work that it was doing helped me to find a voice at a time where I was completely voiceless, completely invisible, right? A teen in the juvenile justice system, a pregnant teen and a homeless teen. I was like rocking out on a lot of different fronts in terms of people not wanting to see me, not wanting to hear my voice, my voice being one of those voices that shouldn't matter because something about whatever I had done in my life, my choices didn't qualify me to have a voice. Sisters on the Rise helped change my perspective and really activate me to push back against uh, the world that was telling me that I didn't need to be seen and I didn't need to be heard and that somehow all of my life choices were a mistake. The reproductive justice framework supported Sisters on the Rise with taking an intersectional look at how education policy affected teen moms. And in episode seven, Professor Lynn Roberts shared about how the intersectional nature of the reproductive justice framework inspired her undergrad students to question the New York City Health Department's Maybe the IUD campaign about seven years ago. 
they brought to my attention a need to work with the Department of Health in New York City around a campaign about long-acting reversible contraceptives. It was students who were interning there who said, well, maybe this framework we learned about in Professor Roberts' class made them think about, you know, this campaign that was going to be rolled out at a predominantly Black student campus in New York City, Medgar Evers. By choosing Medgar Evers, it was almost like they were saying, we really want Black women to have these, you know, young Black women. And that does feel a little bit like population control. Yeah. Um, If you aren't concerned about their whole health, their whole body experience, and are you doing that because you think that becoming pregnant is the worst thing that could happen to somebody? Are you also interested in what their other needs are, their other sexual reproductive health, but also their broader, you know, social economic needs, or even just their needs for basic human dignity? And to be able to have those conversations, bringing that to the Department of Health, it eventually led to broader conversations about their work and an introduction of the framework itself. Speaking of the New York City Health Department, in 2019, I was selected to be the inaugural public artist in residence. But because of COVID, my large-scale public art project in the Bronx was indefinitely postponed and pivoted to create this podcast. Because this project started in the Bronx, it felt important to feature Bronx voices, perspectives, and analysis in the inaugural season of the podcast. I invited all of the co-founders of the BX Rebirth and Progress Collective on the show, and thankfully, they all said yes. BX Rebirth and Progress began as a mutual aid project in the Bronx, providing diapers, wipes, and formula for families during the pandemic. They have since expanded with additional services to support pregnant and parenting people in the borough. In episode five, I chatted with Carmen Mojica, a midwife, mother, doula, and co-founder of BX Rebirth in Progress. What really stands out to me is when we examine the limitations of maternal mortality statistics. I think some folks act like it's it's happening in a vacuum. Like we're just addressing the fact that somebody's dying, but we're not talking about what was the long journey that it took for that person to die because that person didn't just die instantaneously. Decisions that were made based on racism that made that happen. I do want folks to stop dying, obviously, But I'm also more invested in folks that are having really whack prenatal care, right? Like folks that are experiencing trauma and are alive, but now they have this trauma to contend with while they're trying to raise their child. And now we're continuing to pass on intergenerational trauma at the hands of the medical system. So then the question becomes, what do we do with the hospitals that are causing this harm? We need to get the fuck about these hospitals. The task of creating racial equity and eradicating racism from the United States is so many years in the future that Mm -hmm. we can continue to work on that. But if we want this to stop effective immediately, we have to create our own spaces to give birth safely, period. And if you're unfamiliar with what harm looks like for Black birthing people in hospitals, the other co-founders of BX Rebirth in Progress gave us some poignant examples. In episode nine, I interviewed Nicole Jean Baptiste, who, in addition to being a co-founder of BX Rebirth in Progress, she's also a mother of two, a full-spectrum doula, and the founder of Sase Doula Services. During the time of producing the first season of the podcast in 2020, a 26-year-old Black woman by the name of Amber Rose Isaac died during an emergency C-section in a Bronx hospital. Before she lost her life, 
Amber tweeted about the disrespectful treatment she experienced at Montefiore Hospital. Nicole shared how Amber's death spurred her into action. I planned an action outside of Montefiore Hospital on the same day that her partner was going to hold a press conference where people would gather and say Amber's name and demonstrate to the public that this is a site of harm, you know, because I think one of the interesting and fortunate but unfortunate things about what happened was that she called out the hospital. That's very unusual that people are made privy to the actual institution at which the harm and oftentimes death occurs. And what that is, is it's a cover-up. Why is it that such great lengths are taken to protect these spaces when very little regard is given to actual human beings? So I say that to say I felt moved enough to end my self-imposed quarantine to stand up for this level of injustice. And what's happening now is her partner, Bruce McIntyre, is actively working to honor her name and to do his part to ensure that these preventable deaths during pregnancy and birth do not happen anymore. And I also want to be clear, not all racist and disrespectful treatment ends in death. Sometimes it's in the more subtle interactions with healthcare providers. There's less of a need for white patients to have to repeat themselves, you know, and sometimes it's, it's as basic as that. What is being requested by them is almost instantly respected and understood and not undermined and not questioned either. I keep going back to the epidural scenario because that's one of the more common ones. I've been in too many situations where people will make it known that they want to avoid that form of intervention and yet it's being pushed on them. I was recently at a birth earlier this year where my client successfully circumvented the epidural and after her baby was born she was speaking with the nurses and one of the nurses who had been coming in and who was one of the main culprits where this whole epidural push and coercion was concerned, she outright confessed. She was just like, you know, I really thought you were going to fold. I really thought that... I didn't think that you, most of our people, most of our people, they, they go for the epidural. And then that was also very telling. It, it made me wonder whether this is the way that most of the hospital staff think. In the season finale, I interviewed Evelyn Alvarez, the third co-founder of BX Rebirth in Progress. She is also a mother, doula, and trainer. She told this story of assisting a birth. My client was a trans man, and they kept telling me, please ask them not to say mom. Your client is My asking client is you asking to, tell, yes. to tell the, the staff not to say mom. If they're going to address me, to please say, like, you know, Joey, for example. Okay, like use their name or use something. Use their name, mm-hmm. right. Or just use the pronouns, the, the preferred pronoun. 
It was like nine hours of refusal to use the pronoun. Everybody that came in the room, hey, mom, how's she doing? It was warmth in the tone, but just complete dismissal of the request. In season one, we examined some of the ways pregnant and parenting people experience harm that's not often centered or discussed in mainstream maternal health conversations. For example, in episode 10, I chatted with Erin Miles Cloud, a mother, a lawyer, and the co-founder and co-director of Movement for Family Power. In our conversation, she thoroughly breaks down the child welfare system and the ways that system interacts with pregnancy, childbirth, and parenting. Pregnant people who use drugs are seeing removals and investigations and surveillance of their home and body that are inconsistent with medical practices, that are inconsistent with what we see with white people who are also using substances at same or higher rates. And we're seeing this legacy of the war on drugs center itself and actually be ground zero in our child welfare system. And we accept that in our society because we have this idea of what pregnant people are, what they should do and what mothering should be that is inconsistent what it means to be human. It's just a pathology and a concept that this person's now a horrible parent, that there's nothing that they can do. And what we know is that a drug test is not a parenting test, that Mm. drug use and parenting are two different inquiries and someone could be a great parent and use drugs and someone could be a terrible parent who doesn't use drugs. Those two things are different inquiries, but we still see a massive conflation between those concepts. In that episode, Erin further explains how the war on drugs has translated to a war on Black birthing people. And listeners got to revisit that conversation in episode 11 when I interviewed the folks at the National Harm Reduction Coalition. Natalia Gibbs, a harm reduction coordinator at the coalition, gave us some additional insight. If you were not a person using drugs, being a Black birthing person in the city is already dangerous and criminalized. So if you're a Black birthing person who's using drugs and pregnant, these are all things that, whether explicitly or not, people hold and think about and and make it difficult to navigate care. Like, you're already talking about somebody who might be at a baseline going into the hospital and not being listened to. And so to know that you are a person using drugs who's already not listened to and criminalized in all of these other spaces, that's going to compound. If you were a pregnant person who was using a drug and went to get prenatal care, they might not give you good care right off the bat. They might not give you care at all. They might turn you away. That baseline that Natalia talked about, that not being listened to, is exactly what Nicole Jean-Baptiste discussed as well. The other through line here is coercion. Natalia mentioned folks who use drugs are sometimes encouraged to terminate a pregnancy, but what happens when you're pregnant in New York City and want to get an abortion, but instead you're coerced into carrying the pregnancy to term, essentially coerced into childbirth and parenthood? That question is what Elizabeth Estrada and I discussed in episode six. Elizabeth is the New York Field and Advocacy Manager at the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. In her role, she works with New Yorkers and advocates to blow the whistle on organizations that are fake clinics posing as abortion clinics. The point of the organizations is to confuse and detour. And it is by design that they are stationed nearby, in front of, next to, in the same buildings of legitimate abortion clinics. In this particular case here in the Bronx with EMC, it's located across the street from Planned Parenthood. And if you think fake clinics are rare, you're sadly mistaken. Even in a, you know, quote unquote, liberal bastion that we live in, fake clinics outnumber 
the amount of real legitimate healthcare providing clinics in New York. 120 fake clinics live in the state of New York. That number blew my mind. And speaking of numbers, my interview with Natasha Johnson also brought up some startling statistics. Natasha is an activist, an artist, an advocate, and an attorney. And in episode eight, we discussed female genital mutilation and cutting, or FGMC for short, and the ways it impacts the sexual and reproductive health of New Yorkers. When you have a number like 65,000 just in the New York City metropolitan area, half a million in the country, we all know somebody who's experiencing this or at threat of it, whether we actually Hmm. know that consciously or not. They are our colleague, they're our friend, they're our student, they're our neighbor, they may be us. If you're unfamiliar with FGMC, here are some of the ways that it impacts sexual and reproductive health. My experience has been most folks don't come into a hospital or medical facility with leading FGMC symptoms. They have other symptoms that are oftentimes created because of FGMC. For instance, they may have severe keloids or severe bleeding or really pronounced UTIs, urinary tract infections that prohibit them from, you know, the normalcy of life and comfort and ease. Or they might be pregnant and be coming for prenatal services. And this often happened to a lot of my clients. Doctors realize, wow, you've been modified. And while these numbers and this information can be startling, I want to be clear. On this show, we don't just talk about statistics and problems. We also discuss and examine potential solutions, questions to live through, and finding our way forward. That's why I love this beautiful and important message from Chanel Portia, mother, doula, and founder and director of Ancient Song Doula Services, who I had the pleasure of interviewing in episode four. What does it mean for us to center intergenerational hope? For us to understand that the present that you're standing in right now is the hope of your ancestors that they had Mm -hmm. in the past. And like what you're working towards in the present is a hope for the future. Speaking of the future, stay tuned for season two in 2022, where I will be switching up the format and widening the scope while maintaining a commitment to birth justice and reproductive justice. Now, before we go, I'm going to leave you with one more moment from Evelyn Alvarez, which captures why this podcast matters. Because when you live Black women, you live everybody else. Period. Okay, like, that's, that's it. it. When you live Black women, you lift everybody because so much of the work of humanity falls on our back. So it behooves everybody to look out for us because when you look out for us, we look out for everybody. And then, mm. you know, just a reminder that, like, all health is maternal health. There is no space that does not impact maternal health. When we talk about economic justice, that's maternal health. If we're talking about restorative justice, that's maternal health. If we're talking about reproductive ju- you know, justice, that's maternal health. So all health is maternal health. Period. Okay. Reproductive justice is an intersectional framework. And that's exactly why a third of the season featured conversations that are not widely discussed or centered in maternal health. This project was my first podcast, y'all. And I give thanks for the thousands of folks who tuned in every week to learn more about how New Yorkers are navigating sexual and reproductive health. I also give thanks for our esteemed guests who helped us make sense and meaning of the challenges and also gave us questions and insight to consider as we find our way forward. In the next season, you can expect to hear from more than one guest in an episode and for the focus to shift from NYC to nationwide. And P.S., this podcast will be getting a new name, so 
Stay tuned for announcements and details. Be sure to support this podcast on Patreon. Like many things in our world, the Patreon has transformed. It does more than support this podcast. It supports all of my creative projects. If you'd like to support my work and the sustainability of this podcast, I encourage you to consider. Join my Patreon for as little as $8 a month. During season two, there will be some exclusive additional content that will only be available via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash Taja Lindley to learn more. The Birth Justice Podcast NYC is created and hosted by yours truly, Taja Lindley, produced by Color Girls Hustle, with the music, soundscape, and audio engineering by Emma Alabaster. Because when you live black women, you live everybody else. Because when you look out for us, we look out for everybody. Period. Okay, like okay, is, okay, like okay. Like, period. Okay. All healthy mental health. All healthy mental health. We are shifting the tide. All healthy mental health. See you soon.